This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Today I have with me David Donaldson, who's the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center. Welcome, David. Hi, Susan. Very glad to be here. Glad to have you, especially since we're talking about one of my favorite topics, which is what could possibly be the advantage of having the disease of addiction. Now, in our previous shows and honestly with a lot of our interactions with patients and their families, the discussion about the disease of addiction is about the negatives, the things that the person has gone through as they've been active in their disease, the concerns that the family has, and the worries that they are uh, expressing around relapse, around their own codependency and so forth. We often have to talk about fairly significant medical problems that have resulted from the disease. Many people have been involved with the legal system or the school system. There have been fairly significant consequences that happen every time somebody comes into treatment. They don't just wake up and say, gee, this is a great day, I think I'll go to treatment. No, something bad has happened. And a lot of our focus, a lot of our education is around understanding this disease, understanding its impact, and working on some coping skills. But I think it's always important, and I like to share this with our families and our patients at the Atlanta Healing Center, the, the news that, you know what, there are a lot of psychological and physical advantages that come along with this disease. It's not all bad news. Absolutely. I mean, the reality is people would not get to the point of, of coming to a center in a crisis if earlier on in their lives the, the chemical they're using or the, the addictive behavior they're using wasn't providing something for them that was really, really beneficial, um, something that was was creating the, the need to keep doing it and the desire to keep doing it more. Real often we'll talk with, with patients and their families about that initial improved performance that they'll get and their initial um, um, benefits from the use before everything went bad and before before the crash. So there was a period um, with with all of their use that it was doing something beneficial. And I think that's an important thing to understand that sometimes we have to look at other areas of their life, like you say, that they may be suffering with anxiety and so using alcohol helped them. Or they may have been having trouble focusing at school so they started using stimulants to help with that. Or they couldn't sleep or they were in pain. So there were a number of things that often are the catalyst for someone to continue to use it, a substance in order to help them not just get high, but to actually be more efficient, more effective, or to perform better. Well, and, and part of what I always like about this subject and looking at what, what were some of the benefits of it is that, for me, I'm, I'm often looking at the family situation and the interactions between the alcoholic or the drug addict and their family members. And, and there are a lot of advantages for codependency as well as addiction. So they really do go hand in hand and they support each other. Um, as they're going up the, um, the, the hill, 
before that crisis happens and before it starts to descend. Real often, the, the couple would not have met were it not for the chemical uses that, that brought them together in the first place. So this is a very complicated um, topic. This is a very complicated disease. And as we always talk about, it is a family disease, not just because it's genetically inherited, but because when one person is ill or um, actively involved in their disease, the family network, the family and the community around that person, they're all affected. And their behaviors change. Their coping strategies change. And the unfortunate effect of that, if that goes untreated on both sides, is that the addiction grows and the difficulty with the relationships and the dysfunction in the relationship grows and so the codependency grows. So this is uh, something that has to be addressed from many, many layers. And we're all familiar with the idea that people who have the disease of addiction have a potentially lethal disease, that people die from this disease. And as I was thinking about this a number of years ago, I was reflecting on other genetically inherited diseases that are often lethal, and I kept thinking, well, it's really interesting because if you look at the statistics around the world and you um, investigate the amount of addiction in any population, you'll see that over many generations and across all cultures, there are about the same number of people who have the disease of addiction. That it isn't like other genetically inherited diseases like hemophilia, where the individual who may have this disease has um, not been able to survive very long with this disease, and often this disease actually begins to die out, or it's a smaller and smaller number of people in any population that have these really potential lethal genetically inherited diseases. So why is addiction not like that? Why are people who have the disease of addiction remaining pretty constant in their numbers around the world and throughout culture and throughout time? What is it? What's the other side of this disease? Why would this be that people are continuing and we're not seeing the addicts die out in the population. It was something that really got me thinking about. It's it's a subject that um, that when you bring it up and you talk about it with family groups, real often there's this real anxiety and this question about, um, hey, wait a minute, she's talking about all these positives and, and putting this positive spin on it. And, and um, it creates a, a lot of anxiety in and of itself because it's almost sounding like promoting addiction um, um, and so listening to the full discussion of it really brings some some amazing insights for the family members and often people will say that this is a very actually motivating kind of idea that rather than the stigma and the potential death sentence of having the disease of addiction, that there may be actual components of this same disease that result in a person performing better and actually being quite successful in their life if we can manage that lethality. 
So in, in trying to look at this disease and doing some research, I looked back a little bit, and I went back into some history um, textbooks, and um, a man named Harry Jarrison, back in 1973, began to discuss uh, the idea of the size of a person's brain um, in relationship to um, the hunter-gatherers versus farmers. Now, if you look at how our... Um, our world is divided back before the industrialized um, uh, nations began to form. We were uh, two different types of people. We had the hunter-gatherers that lived more in the northern climates or the very southern climates. They survived on hunting and fishing and gathering fruits and berries and whatever they could find. And they lived a very different life than people who lived more around the equator, where the temperatures were more moderate and predictable, and they didn't necessarily have to hunt to survive. They were able to grow foods and cultivate. So these were two different types of individuals. And when we look at the differences in what the brain was required to do. Now, certainly people who were farmers back in these many, many years ago days, um, they had to be very aware of what was happening in terms of the change of seasons and the change of crops and understand what worked well with which type of soil and so forth. But if you look at the complex process that happens, has to happen when someone is hunting down an animal and chasing it, finding a way to kill it, finding a way to bring it back to the tribe or bring it back to the, um, the camping, the campground, and then prepare it, eat it, preserve it, and then travel with it, um, and understand the migration of the different animals, understand the role of uh, the temperature and climate and the changing of seasons, this required a lot higher cognitive functioning. And this required the person to actually develop a larger brain because this is a lot of strategy that goes into this particular type of survival. So um, then I read some things by um, Randolph Ness, who's an evolutionary psychiatrist at the University of Michigan. And he um, points out the fact that hunter-gatherers, um, these particular nomadic types of people, had to be more responsive to neurotransmitters, those chemical messengers in our brain that help us with all kinds of functionings, but the um, particular neurotransmitters, dopamine and serotonin, were really important for survival. And that not only were the hunter-gatherers much more likely to be more responsive to serotonin and dopamine, and you may, um, our listeners may be very familiar with serotonin. It gets talked about in a lot of advertisements for antidepressants. Serotonin is the neurotransmitter that's responsible for mood regulation, for sleep, 
cycles for energy, for appetite, focus, attention, memory. A lot of things are controlled by serotonin, and when your serotonin levels drop, people will often experience symptoms of depression. Dopamine we've heard a lot about because that's the pleasure chemical that is dysregulated when people have the disease of addiction. So Dr. Ness um, was able to um, hypothesize and study the link between neurotransmitters like dopamine that reward and serotonin that help keep someone's mood stable. If you are hunting, if you are having to expend lots of energy, then you need to be able to experience a great enough reward to keep you doing that. And you need your serotonin levels to be relatively stable so that if it's a bad day or a long hunt or things aren't going well, you're able to still keep up your enthusiasm and your willingness to continue to do what you need to do. We're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about hunter-gatherers and the development of our brains and the role of this in the disease of addiction. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and Medical Director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Today with me is David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're talking about the good news, 
the advantages of having the disease of addiction. Right before the break, we were talking about the research done by Dr. Ness up at the University of Michigan and his theory that hunter-gatherers were um, actually producing larger amounts of dopamine and serotonin in order to maintain the lifestyle and actually survive. The dopamine would reward them for making a good um, and having a good successful hunt. The uh, serotonin levels were more stabilized, and so this would really help in terms of the hunter being willing to continue, not getting discouraged, not getting depressed, but continuing to search and seek out and find a solution if the hunt had not gone well. So this resulted, according to Dr. Ness, in the hunter-gatherer also having larger brains and being much more susceptible to the reward of dopamine. And that's a big thing if you remember the disease of addiction is uh, an individual that has a, a problem in their dopamine feedback loop and their experience of dopamine continues long after someone else who doesn't have the disease of addiction. Their dopamine regulatory system shuts down, but the person with the disease of addiction never gets the message they've had enough, they've gone (laughs) too far. Um, They continue to get rewarded, and they're very um, susceptible to this particular reward. So inherent in some of the um, behaviors that we see in the hunter-gatherers, and um, uh, we see in people who have the disease of addiction, that ability to keep going, to keep pressing on, to not get discouraged, to tolerate more extreme intensity, and to also then be extremely rewarded and very pleased when they've been successful. Well, and, and part of what I think about, you know, when you, you picture the old movies of, of the clan of the cave bear and these, these old times, the, there was a real um, emotional working themselves up for the hunt. You know, they would beat their chests and they would, would um, uh, cheer each other on as they're getting ready to go out there and chase down the beast. And for their family members, there would be the... the um, getting them built up and making them feel confident and successful and, and uh, um, really pushing them to, to go out and, and, and kill the, the wild animals. But there was also the constant living with the anxiety of, are they going to come back? Are they going to um, go out there and, and get, get, go after this and end up falling and breaking a bone or breaking, a, um, breaking their neck or dying? Are they not going to come back at all? Are we going to be left here to just starve? And then when the hunter-gatherers, when they would come back, there would be that, um, you know, celebration of, of having had a successful hunt and having brought meat, meat back, and, and there would be the, um, the release of, of all of that anxiety of, are they going to come back, followed immediately by the celebration and, and everything is wonderful again, which is so much like the dynamic that we see within the homes. Um, there's the anxiety when when you're expecting your spouse to come home at 5 o'clock and it's now 5.30 or it's now 6 o'clock and they're not here yet and you're pacing the floor and you've made a beautiful meal and you thought, you yeah, were going to have a relaxing time together, but instead you're looking at the telephone and you're even picking up the phone and starting to call um, places that they may have gone to with that anxiety that's building itself up and 
and the relief that happens once you discover where they're at. You know, even if they're drunk, you have a sense of release of, oh, my gosh, I knew that's where they were and everything is back under control again. Um, so it, it gets into that same um, emotional link that's going on that, that's building up the addiction brain in the, um, in the, the brains of the, the, you know, we talk about with codependency, every addict has six or seven or eight people revolving around them to keep that person propped up. And, and I would imagine in, in the hunter-gatherers, there were quite a few people at home working on, on keeping things going. I think that's a really um, a very interesting parallel that you've brought up, David, this uh, parallel development of uh, someone doing extreme heroic kinds of uh, feats that the survival of the community depends on, uh, all of the people at home doing the work, uh, taking care of business, making sure the kids are safe and the food's been cooked and the clothing repaired, and fighting off any intruders or uh, wild beasts that might be coming and their constant anguish and anxiety around, are we all going to survive our loved ones coming home? And then, the, like you say, the great relief only to know that, again, in the very near future, this is all going to start again, and the hunter is going to have to go back out, and the, um, the rest of the clan is going to have to stay home and wait and take care of things and be prepared for whatever does or doesn't happen. And I think that's a, uh, you're right, that's an exact parallel in many ways to what we see with the person with the disease of addiction and their clan <laughs> that has gathered around them to try and protect them and make things right and take care of the problems and the anxiety associated with that. Well, and, and the other piece that you talk about, that the that, uh, hunter, you know, their brain is developing with, with the protein, and, and part of what you also talk about is that... Um, they're, they're storing foods and they're eating foods that, that become fermented. So they're becoming, they're, they're already having exposure to alcohol. And so part of the reward I would imagine for family members is they're getting the same nutrition. They're getting the same beginning exposures to the fermented foods. Um, um, and they're, they're processing it in a different way. They're not having that adrenaline release of the hunt, but they're having the, um, the release of the anxiety and the, the, dopamine when the hunter comes home. And the relief of the anxiety when they're exposed to the alcohol that's part of the fermentation process. So that may not be the high that people are expecting from alcohol that we often see with, with alcoholics and with other types of addicts that they're using substances often, not always, but often to make a good time better, to make a good time, a great time, but for the family members and the other side of the, of the disease of alcoholism, if we stay with that, there are certainly those alcoholics who are not finding this a great time. They're not the life of the party. They're the person who is uh, anxious, who's sad, who's lonely, who's fearful, and they're using alcohol to make a an intolerable time at least tolerable. So alcohol, 
because it was part of the fermentation process. In the zymotic theory of how our brains developed, um, the idea that as hunter-gatherers developed fermentation, that the exposure to alcohol was one more thing that increased their exposure to dopamine because dopamine gets released for everybody, whether they have the disease of addiction or not. They get dopamine released when they use alcohol and that this may have also contributed to their growing brains, their growing intelligence. So it wasn't so much that alcohol was a bad thing. Alcohol became, in many ways, a very adaptive thing for for this particular group of folks. And as we realized that the farmers who lived in more moderate climates ate foods that were not usually fermented, and so this is a different developmental uh, pathway. And it's real interesting um, when we look at Um, a map of the world, and we look at the per capita alcohol consumption, what's really striking to me is that those countries that are around the equator have the lowest per liter per capita alcohol consumption than anywhere in the world. And places like Greenland are 13-plus liters per person not per adult, but per person, 13 liters per person of alcohol consumed per year. So the further north you get, the colder the climate, or the further south you get, if we look at this map, and I'm sorry that you listeners can't see the map, but we see places like New Zealand, we see places like um, Australia, uh, some of the South American countries, and certainly Russia, North America, um, the... um, uh, England, we look at um, the America and Canada and Alaska, all of those places have the over 13 liters um, per capita, whereas the, the places around the equator, even even the, the most, as you're looking at the color codes, it goes up in, in units of three, basically. So around the equator, the most you see is three liters per capita, um, um, in sharp contrast with what's going on with the with the ones in the northern climates, it's really pretty uh, astounding, and this is is pretty classic. And this isn't a thousand years ago. This is a current day. So these kinds of patterns of alcohol use have been pretty consistent over time. The colder you are, <laughs> apparently, the more you need alcohol to make you think or at least feel like you're warm. And to imagine to cope with that climate. So um, one of the other things that's very interesting from um, a brain development standpoint is that our brains are hardwired to find sugar. You know, and to talk about about that piece of it, I mean, everybody that, that you deal with is struggling in some way with sugar in our society at this point, whether it's just... Um, feeling like they've eaten too much or they, they've eaten too little. Um, but it is a part of, of practically every person you're dealing with, um, whether there's addiction in the family or not. That aspect of it, managing sugar in our society, has become um, a massive issue. And back in the day, um, again, going back to the hunter-gatherer days, 
very interesting to understand that if you are running a long way and your energy stores have been depleted, our brains are hardwired to look for ripe fruit or to look for berries that are ripe or to look for honey. And in doing this, our brain gets rewarded with sugar. It gets dopamine released when we eat sugar. That used to be a very important survival technique and one that probably saved lots of people if their brains are looking for the sugar in the fruit or the honey. Um, The problem is nowadays there's sugar in just about everything. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the unexpected places you might find sugar and the role of sugar in addiction. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoons. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction with Dr. Susan Blank. I've got... David Donaldson with me from the Atlanta Healing Center today, and we're talking about the advantages of the disease of addiction. So we've looked at um, how exposure to alcohol may have actually increased the brain size and the brain development of hunter-gatherers. We've looked at the idea that having elevated levels of dopamine and being um, exquisitely responsive to um, levels of dopamine may really help 
the hunter-gatherers be able to continue to do what they need to do to hunt down the animals and to bring them home to their camp. Uh, We've looked at the importance of stabilizing serotonin and how that can be really very effective in helping people continue under even very adverse circumstances to work hard, to be focused, and to do whatever they need to do to be able to feed their family and keep them safe. So these things are really important in terms of the development of the brain and the growth and the um, improvement in the human brain. Right before the break, we talked a little bit about the role of sugar and the fact that sugar is the only food that we actually get dopamine released for. So eat your broccoli. I encourage it. I love broccoli, love my Brussels sprouts, but they aren't going to affect my brain like eating some sugar or some cookies or some ice cream is going to affect my brain. And that's for everybody. That's not just folks who have the disease of addiction because we are wired as a survival um, enhancement to look out for and seek sugar, and our brains get rewarded for it. When you have the disease of addiction, you get rewarded for eating sugar, but your reward is more intense and lasts longer than the person who doesn't have the disease of addiction because eventually the person without addiction, the pleasure chemical goes down, the dopamine feedback loop shuts down, but that's not necessarily the case for folks who have the disease of addiction. So, David, what do we see in our patients when they stop using um, drugs and alcohol? Well, you know, it's really interesting because all of the patients will have um, cravings for sugar. They'll start um, regularly talking about how they'll eat a pint of ice cream a night um, or they're hooked on various candy bars. And and for a long time, we would talk about the alcoholic, that they used to get a lot of sugar in their alcohol, and so now they're just replacing it with um, with ice cream. Um, um, and the, the crystal meth addicts, that they've gotten so depleted on everything and all of their chemicals that they're just filling it back up. But, but thinking about it in terms of all of these addicts, regardless of their drug of choice, are still hardwired for sugar, and they're getting dopamine for sugar, and that the disease of addiction is um, um, a, a disease of dopamine misregulation. So, I mean, it really makes sense that they're all getting it. Um, I, I think it's really interesting to, to look at this piece of it in particular because, you know, you talk about broccoli and you talk about Brussels sprouts, but the truth is there's not many of us who are going to eat that unless it's cooked in sweet and salted butter. <laughs> That's putting some additional flavors into that. You are absolutely right, um, and guilty as charged. You know, I just really do love my Brussels sprouts with a whole bunch of bacon, <laughs> honestly. But I will eat them semi-plain. I will, but they're not going to do for me, <laughs> um, you know, what some of my husband's creme brulee will do for me. Yes, and that bacon's been cured in either honey or sugar. <laughs> Because there is sugar in everything at this stage in the game. There's there's um, sugar in, in all of the fruits that's out there. There's sugar in, in all, all the normal sources. But you think about there's there's sugar now in mixed into all of the bread. There's sugar 
even even in um, French fries at McDonald's, they're glistened. I'm not sure if I can say that, but glistened with sugar. And cigarettes have sugar. The the tobacco is soaked in sugar to keep that whole addiction going. There are about 600,000 different foods that are processed, food products that are sold in the United States. 80% of them have sugar. Now, um, a lot of the manufacturers have gotten wise and understand that people are beginning to worry about sugar. So they go to great lengths to disguise or to use other words to describe the sugars that have been added. You know, you expect, of course, sugar in your cookies and your pies and your Fruit Loops, but um, you don't necessarily expect sugar in your processed meats or in your um, vegetables or other kinds of things. And so they use a bunch of different words. But And in particular, the one that stands out that's getting all this bad press is high fructose corn syrup um, because it's so processed that you're, it just goes um, right into everything. But, but it's in... Um, <clears throat> regular brown sugar, it's in agave nectar, it's in carob syrup, it's in um, glucose, it's in um, um, dexatran, all of these different things and different chemical names that, that you would not necessarily think of as sugar, um, um, but your brain is lighting up once you start having any of those things. And so sugar, while probably in the um, hunter-gatherer days, saved a lot of lives in terms of giving some immediate release of, of glucose so that the warrior or the hunter would be able to continue to uh, perform, continue to run, continue the endurance, to have the energy to do that. Uh, sugar is becoming to be the downfall of so many people, and it is a real serious problem for a lot of our patients, and in fact, some of them will begin to realize as they get further into their recovery that sugar may have been the first thing that they were addicted to. Yeah, um, and I think about, again, with the family side, you know, that sugar is the comfort food while people are are home waiting for their family member to come home or while they're... they're um, dealing with the stress related to it. And, and so real often you'll find on both sides um, a significant weight gain um, in the recovery process. And, and you'll find the relapse factor will be um, either weight gain or restricting food or restricting um, some, some sort of sugar component that becomes a relapse factor on both sides for um, back in, going into active addiction. That's really important because when we look at the stress hormone, cortisol, which is supposed to help us cope with emergencies and to deal with our everyday-to-day life, um, when cortisol levels rise, one of the symptoms is sugar cravings and increased insulin and increased uh, risk of metabolic syndrome and eventual diabetes. So if you've got people active in their disease of addiction who are living very stressful lives because of their addiction. On the flip side, you've got the family who is living a very stressful life in terms of their love, concern, anger, frustration with their loved one who has the disease. Both of them show very similar signs of elevated cortisol 
elevated weight gain, elevated sugar cravings, elevated sugar consumption. Again, I think it's, um, it's just a very interesting parallel process that we see in terms of what's happening to the person with the disease of addiction and what's happening to their loved ones who may be struggling with codependency. Well, and when you look at the medical complications that both sides face related to that, um, um, one from the impact of the chemical and the other from the impact of the stress, they both deal with cardiac issues. They both deal with blood pressure issues. They both deal with um, several of these, these stress-induced situations. Um, family members we know will have um, a higher than normal level of, of um, issues that, that if they had been more able to just go to the doctor regularly and take care of, um, would not have escalated issues like, like breast cancer and those kind of things that just got minimized or put to the side because their concern and their focus was um, um, the loved one. And that's why we developed the Atlanta Wellness Center, which is our parallel program for uh, the family members, loved ones, and other interested parties uh, who may be struggling with some of these stress-related disorders that they too may need to have some help in terms of reducing their stress, managing their stress, uh, managing their, their diets, their nutrition, their hormone levels, uh, helping them be able to sleep, helping them be able to do some of the things that they haven't been able to do for a long time. So we started our Atlanta Wellness Center as a parallel um, opportunity for the family members or members of the community who, who don't necessarily have the disease of addiction but are suffering from some stress-related disorders. And, and that's part of where, where we've seen the, the similar patterns in their um, hormones and, and in that because we'll have family members that want to come in and have the same test done after they've seen all of these things being done, done with the active addict or the person in early recovery. And the results will be really, really quite similar. So um, one of the things that we need to look at is um, to understand that we are very uh, much seeing the developmental parallels in terms of the disease of addiction and the disease of codependency. We're also um, understanding that as our brains developed and evolved, there were a number of things that might have been very uh, adaptive and helpful, like being ADHD. Um, if you're a hunter and you are very sensitive to what changes might be happening in your environment, that's a really good thing. If you are sensitive to change in the wind or how something smells differently or movement over here or a change in color over there, then you're much more likely to be a successful hunter. However, that doesn't do so well for you if you are not a hunter-gatherer anymore, but you are now someone who um, needs to sit in a classroom and be good and follow the rules and listen and be quiet. So we see a lot of our patients getting misdiagnosed with, the, with ADHD, and in fact that may have been another one of those very adaptive things that now has gotten in the way of our patients who have the disease of addiction. So in our um, next section, we're going to talk a little bit more about what might be the 
advantage of having the disease of addiction. I do hope you'll stay tuned. We're going to be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. With all the back and forth in today's politics... It seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening on America's Web Radio. I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center with me today, and we're talking about the advantages of the disease of addiction. We've talked about the possibility that actually having ADD, being a hunter-gatherer, being exposed to fermented foods and drinks, and being a very sensitive to changes in dopamine and serotonin may have been real advantages. And then we throw in the hard wiring that our brain has um, developed as an energy-saving mechanism for um, a, a dependence on sugar that we are looking for constantly, sugar in our environment. All of these things are part of what may have developed in terms of developing the disease of addiction, as well as many advantages. So let's talk about what some of those advantages may be today. 
And I think that there really are a lot of advantages. And I was having a conversation uh, with a patient earlier, and he was saying, you know, as I've been able to stop using um, drugs, I've found that I'm doing really well at school, and I really feel uh, successful, and I can concentrate, and I'm, I'm learning, and I think that my life can be so much better now that I've got my disease under control, and I pointed out to him, yes, you've got the lethal part of your disease under control, and that's the good thing, but part of your disease is also that ability to focus and that ability to be successful and that ability to work hard and be dedicated to doing well in school. So that's the part that I'd like to talk about. What are the actual advantages if we can control that lethality part, that self-destructive part that can happen with alcohol and drugs, what's our advantage? But in, in particular, the, the ability, you know, the hunter-gatherers, when they went out and they were, they were chasing, they had to, to really be able to have um, patience to know that they were on the hunt and that they were, they were able to look over the environment and look for whatever particular thing they're, they're hunting for. But they had the patience for it to come. They had to, had to, to um, really strategize with each other and coordinate with each other to, to be able to um, kill and, and succeed at that. And so the, the person who's got the ability to really zero in on, I want to um, create the next um, big item that's going to change our world and can get obsessed with creating it and then cre- can get obsessed with selling it to the world, um, um, that's, that's completely the addictive process, just getting completely focused on... Um, um, success. And doing whatever it takes to be successful, whether it's scoring drugs, (laughs) whether it's um, sneaking out and continuing to use alcohol or drugs or having relationships, all of those kinds of things, that singleness of purpose and that willingness to do whatever you need to do to make it happen, we see that very clearly acted out around the disease of addiction. But when we remove the drugs and alcohol, those, those skills are still there. And the skill to be able to read other people. Now, for the person with addiction, they can tell when's a good time to ask, when's a good time to not ask. They know how to read the mood of the room. They know how to tell you what they think you want to hear, whether you're their therapist or whether you're their mother or their spouse. Uh, That ability, though, to be able to read the situation and to understand what other people might be needing or wanting to hear makes them really good salespeople. They can overcome some barriers with that. Well, And if you think about the the family members who were so attracted to them early on because of their high tolerance and their their, um, livelihood at the parties and it brought all of this energy then, and the person who was able to kind of reel that person in and keep them organized and keep them focused, they are phenomenal secretaries. They're phenomenal um, um, nurses and, and office managers, and they have all of those skills of being able to, as the addict has, read a room, be able to decide where the crisis is that has to be taken care of first, be able to zero in on, on managing the stress um, um, 
so that office practices are able to be incredibly successful. I think that what's also interesting is that people with the disease of addiction have the ability to get really excited and to feel very passionate about things. And that level of enthusiasm and that level of internal internal generated uh, passion makes them very good leaders, makes them very good at causes, makes them very good military um, leaders, politicians, um, leaders in all sorts of ways, and um, both in the public and the private sector, people who can get very passionate about the environment or passionate about um, developing a new product. That kind of passion is something that we see inherent in the personality, if you will, of someone with the disease of addiction. Well, and it's interesting how often you'll see in that person, um, um, you'll hear in that person the statement, I've never tried alcohol or I've never done any sort of drugs at all. They'll have this incredible focus and obsession around some particular thing, and it's never gotten distracted by chemical dependency they're still reacting in a very dependent or um, um, addictive manner, but it's not being um, derailed. So when you think about this high intensity of purpose, often um, that ability to be fearless, to go out and face the elements and face the dangers and continue to go even when it hurts and even when they're tired and even when they're frustrated, uh, again, this is part of that personality, and we see that these folks are really good at sports. They're very, um, very good in terms of I'm just going to keep going out there and I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to keep trying until I'm successful. I may not be the fastest or the biggest or the strongest, but I am determined. And so we see people with a disease of addiction often being very successful in sports. We see them successful in art and music because they're often willing to look at things in a different way and to go outside the box and to uh, think and daydream, which sometimes gets them into trouble, but that ability to be creative and to not be so worried that they didn't color inside the lines. Well, in particular right now in our election cycle to see all of these politicians that are so and so charismatic and evangelical and and having um, followers I mean the the election cycle has has many people just in awe with all of the current candidates and the way they're they're persuading each other and I'm, I'm not saying any of them are addicts um, or alcoholics or any of that but they are definitely exhibiting a lot of the characteristics we're talking about exactly and this um, again a, a willingness to take some risks and um, to do things that might be considered high adrenaline kinds of activities, we see that very much in our patients with addiction. In fact, that's often one of the characteristics that parents will describe of their, of their children before they've been involved with drugs or alcohol, that they were the first to take the dare and they were the first to try the new thing. And, um, and, and that fearlessness makes them wonderful explorers and entrepreneurs, people who are willing to go out and take some risks and to do things 
that other people might be more hesitant or more fearful about doing um, inherent in many folks with the disease of addiction are these kinds of characteristics, too, which are very adaptive. And definitely people that you want to follow. So codependents are very much apt to get get on board with these people because they have the confidence to say whatever they want to say and they have the um, they, they'll get the party started and, and the codependents are right there um, picking up and absorbing and working with that energy. And so we see that continued relationship that does not have to be negative or pathological, that can be very supportive and can be very productive and having the, um, the visionary person surrounded by people who are attending to details and who are able to make the vision happen. It's a very beautiful kind of relationship that can be very successful for both of these groups. And I think that's real important to know, that these kinds of characteristics that sometimes are your best quality may also be your Achilles heel, but certainly if we can treat the person who has the disease of addiction and get under control their use of drugs, alcohol, and other behaviors in an addictive way and help them clear the path, remove the debris, so that both they can be successful as well as their family. Well, in particular, when they are both working on the recovery process together and and with the common goal of, of we are going to heal from this and we're going to be successful together um, um, rather than being pulled apart by the recovery process, they can have a phenomenal successful um, life experience. And that's the other real important thing is that um, thing that you just mentioned, David, which is they need to be in the recovery process together because if they are, both are going to do really well. If they're not, the chances that either will be able to overcome some of the damage and the destruction of this disease, those chances go down quite a bit. And the risk of relapse is part of uh, what can happen if the whole family doesn't get well. Absolutely. So we wish you all a good help and good happiness. And remember that there are very distinct advantages to help people become extremely successful with the disease of addiction. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Detailing Addiction. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.